before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave a commission to his disciples. He commanded that they make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he had commanded. And they were to carry on this kingdom-building work all the way until the day that he would return. And you and I, right now, seated in this room around the Word of God, singing praises to him, are proof that those disciples took that charge seriously. None of us in any, in any of our current life situation or any tracing back in history of those who preceded us in the faith spontaneously came to know the Lord apart from somebody sharing the gospel message or them hearing the word of God in some way. They took that charge seriously. They built the kingdom. They obeyed the great commission and we get to carry on this great work. Praise God for that victory. But we also know of many individuals, churches, even institutions of cultures over the course of history that at one time were built for the expressed purpose of building Christ's kingdom, but have since lost their way. When I think of a great example of what I'm talking about here, warning of, I think of the Ivy League schools of the American East. They were founded by Christians for Christians. And it's hard for me to imagine a better example of mission drift. These are schools of higher education who have shifted so dramatically from their Christian roots as to become, as institutions, enemies of the cross of Christ. You might know that Harvard as a school was named after a Puritan pastor named John Harvard. In fact, in 1643, that's nearly 400 years ago, their purpose statement was this, to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Their desire was for faithfulness and to train up ministers of the gospel to remain faithful long after that generation would die off. Princeton was likewise founded by Christians for a similar, similar purpose. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, who graduated from Yale, went on to become one of the presidents of what is now Princeton University. Yet, I suspect that many of you know that now, for a believer to make it through four or more years of education at one of those schools, with his or her faith intact, is nothing short of a bona fide miracle. So many institutions have gone this way. Hospitals, orphanages, schools, even institutions like uh, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, or the Salvation Army, initially founded and designed to be embassies of Christian virtue. So few of those remain on that original course. In fact, you and I all know of churches and even whole denominations that claim the name and mission of Christ, yet exalt in sin. Or perhaps they're just so afraid of offending the world that they refuse to acknowledge the evil of our day, and in so doing, they offend God. How does this happen? How is it that when Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission tells them to continue in this work until he returns. And during this age of kingdom building, even those who said, put a stake in the ground at some point and said, we will remain faithful. How is it then that that mission can drift so far off course? Well, the simple answer, of course, is sin. Sin finds its way in. In fact, in none of those situations do we have full-blown holy fidelity to the Word of God, and then overnight, the entire institution says, forget this, let's go the other way. It's always one thing after the next, after the next, at strategic points that weaken the plan until they invert their course. Well, didn't Jesus know that this would happen? 
Was he so idealistic that he just assumed, hey, we're going to start here and every institution, every, every church, every household that, that sets itself to remain faithful is going to just exponentially grow and there's not going to be any problem? No. Of course Christ knew that this would happen. In fact, a significant portion of the New Testament specifically tells us how to deal with sin. And to what end? That individuals and the groups that are comprised of those individuals would be able to remain faithful. Christ has provided His church with correction mechanisms in order to preserve faithfulness amongst His people throughout the generations. And only when we hear and heed those instructions can we have any hope of remaining faithful until the day that He returns. How a church, both individually and collectively, deals with sin will tell you a lot about that church. In fact, I would argue that a church that has chosen to not confront sin, either either overtly saying we're not going to do this or just passively not doing it, any church that does that has already begun to drift into worldliness. And unless that church repents and corrects course, that church will inevitably join the ranks of those many other institutions that have become so godless. We're in the midst of a sermon series I've entitled One Another. And that's just as because we see many passages in the New Testament helping believers to relate to one another. And that's the idea in mind. Most of the places we'll see the Greek word that's translated as one another in the New Testament. It's not talking about just your random neighbor who may be of any faith. It's actually almost always talking about Christian-on-Christian relationships. And so we're giving tons of instruction in the New Testament of how we ought to do that. And thanks be to God, we're also told how to deal with error We're taught how to confront sin. That's where we're going to turn our attention this morning. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Galatians 6. We're only going to get through the first two verses today because there's a lot to unpack in these verses. But the Apostle Paul who writes this letter is going to specifically help Christians deal with sin with one another. So we're going to take a look at how to confront sin according to the teaching here. I'm just going to read through those two verses, pray, and then we'll go back through uh, that verse, one word, two words, a little phrase at a time, and try to pick it apart, learn from it, be guided by it, and hopefully uh, be served in such a way that we can set ourselves towards greater faithfulness in the future. So please read with me and uh, then pray. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray that we can understand what's being said here, that we can apply it to our lives, but also that we can understand the emphasis with which we're to do these things, the nuances that may be involved here, Because we're talking about things that our heart so often can confuse. Lord, there is sin in every one of us. None of us is perfect. It's so so challenging to know how to deal with that sin in our own hearts, let alone with others. And so, Lord, we need special help from you to help us address the issues we notice in others and to be faithful as a church without going too far in certain categories and overemphasizing what the Bible doesn't and, and even running into error on the other side, the ditch on the other side of the road, so to speak, Lord. Help us become faithful people and remain faithful people so that those who come after us will be even more faithful than we are, that we would care so much about what your word says, that we would seek just to align to it and pursue fidelity in all things. We're going to need your help to do that, Lord, and certainly we're going to need it this very moment as we read through this scripture. Please help us, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. The context of this glorious letter is that it's written by the Apostle Paul specifically dealing with an error that the Galatian Christians are dealing with. In fact, Paul is actually demonstrating for us what correction of sin looks like simply by the fact that this book is being written. This letter was written specifically to confront uh, the sin that was observed in the apostle Peter when he visited the Galatian church. 
Peter shows up to the Galatian church, and he's showing favoritism to a particular sect of these who called themselves Christians, the Judaizers, and he did so in such a way that it actually damaged his gospel witness. And so Paul confronted that, called it out straight in order to get to the bottom of it. By the time we get to chapter 5, Paul is telling us that we need to guard ourselves because inside of each believer there's the flesh and the spirit, and those two battle against each other in a war. And we must not feed the flesh, otherwise we'll produce the fruit of the flesh, wicked things. Instead, we should feed the spirit in us and thereby feed and find fruit of the spirit. He gives us that famous list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. At the conclusion of that chapter, he says this, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul, at the conclusion of that chapter then, makes it clear that when we sin, when we, when we feed the flesh in us and go that direction, it will inevitably impact those around us. And here he guards right off the bat, don't provoke one another, don't become conceited, don't envy one another, because those sins inside of you will eventually be aimed at others. We're told to live in such a way that we experience the fruit of the Spirit and not of the flesh. And what should we do then if we were to observe people feeding the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? And that's what brings us to chapter 6. He says this right out of the gate in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Let's just pause there and take that sentence to start. I'm going to break, I'm just, maybe a few words at a time, maybe even one. Let's start with that first word, brothers. Brothers. When this is used in the New Testament, unless clearly indicated otherwise, it's referring to the family of the church, Christian brothers and sisters. In fact, I, I call all my Christian brothers brothers and sisters. My kids sometimes ask me, they're like, is that... Is he really your brother? Well, yeah, he's really my brother, but not really my brother. It's, you know, because I call my Christian brothers, brothers, and sisters, sisters. I don't almost know any other words for it because I love that language. We've been given it in the Bible to think of each other as family in that way. And so what this is telling us right out of the gate is that Paul has in mind Christians dealing with each other. He's writing this to believers. And what's about to follow here is just like it has been previously. He's not merely instructing believers on how they should relate to their non-believing neighbors. He's talking about the confrontation of sin that only can take place inside of the context of brotherly, sisterly, Christian relationships. This is about church discipline. That's what we call this category, church discipline, dealing with sin and error inside of the Christian church, in-house issues. This is not chiefly about dealing with sin in the non-Christian community around us, but dealing with believers. If you're not a believer today, you need to know that what sets Christians apart from non-Christians is not that we are these sinless ones in ourselves. In fact, to be a believer, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner before a holy God. And even if you're not a believer today, you still are a sinner before a holy God. And being a sinner, you deserve just judgment, penalty from God. And the Bible tells us that the penalty, the wage for your sin is death. And Jesus says that if you die in your sins, you'll be separated from God forever in a place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there is hope because while our works have condemned us, Christ came and his works only proved his righteousness, that he was the one and only son of God sent in love to offer grace and mercy to this broken world. And he went to the cross, and he bore the punishment due, not for his own sins, because he had none, but the punishment due for the sins of all of those who will ever believe in him. And if you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, you can have forgiveness of sins. And as he rose again on the third day, you will have eternal life. But until that day, you will face sin day in and day out. Because we are still of the flesh. We still live on this earth. And so what we want for you, non-believer, is to repent of sins, turn in faith to Jesus, and join us sinners as we are seeking to become more like Jesus. And you and I then will need help from one another in order to deal with our sin. Believers are told, 
to deal with this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what is any transgression? What is caught in? Well, the word for caught in here is snared by, overtaken by. Some of your English translations to this might even use the term overcome by. The imagery here is that of an animal that's gotten caught in a trap. So what I don't think is going on here is it's that believers set up an ambush for their fellow brothers or sisters in Christ, and then when we catch them in their sin, we pounce. That's not the idea. It's when sin has done the snaring, when sin has done the capturing. That's what happens to us. We get caught in sin. It's a snare. Now, that doesn't, of course, abdicate any responsibility from us following our sinful desires into temptation. It simply describes the nature of sin. And we see this all over the Bible. Look with me at Proverbs 5, 22, what it says here. The iniquities of sin of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. You see that? We We don't just cuddle up to our sin in such a way that we have some kind of shared relationship with one another in our sin. Sin is the master for those who are underneath that kind of bondage. In fact, this familiar language is used in the New Testament all over, and Jesus himself says it in this way about our slavery and our bondage. He says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave, that's a chains, bondage, bound and snared by and so, here we go. Paul is trying to instruct us, and he tells us, go ahead and look, look back at uh, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 again with me. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if someone is observed to be ensnared, living in bondage to a particular sin, they're to be helped out of it. Any transgression. Now, I, again, I think that's qualified, that adjective, any. I think it's, it's the kind of sin that is ensnaring you. In other words, I don't think this implies a nitpicky, over-scrupulous perfectionism, as though the singular observation of any imperfect attitude or behavior warrants everyone else pouncing upon it. I don't think that's the idea. I think, I think there's a difference between the kind of sins that are perpetual Perennial, they continue on. We're, we, we continue to prove by our activities and behaviors to be bound to something. I think that's different than the, than the momentary lapse that maybe a lot of grace can be offered up by our fellow brothers and sisters. When a person is captured by their sin, when they're bound by it, that sin must be addressed. And if you're a believer today, you know the feeling of being bound by sin. First, because you probably have a memory in life of a time prior to being set free from that bondage, but also as believers today. It is not uncommon for us to continually struggle with a particular category of sin. That's the kind of thing on repeat, the the, the persistent prayer request you bring before your brothers and sisters. Hey, hey, so how'd you do with that lust issue, brother? Okay, still working through it, still trying to fight that one because it's continually something I'm battling. I think it's that kind of thing. We know this feeling, knowing what we ought to do, but there's a battle inside of us, a battle that burns hot. In fact, again, earlier in Galatians 5, Paul acknowledges that kind of battle. He says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the believer has been made made new, made alive in the spirit. In in his or her spirit knows, I don't want to do that sin. I don't want to follow that course anymore. I don't want to fall to that any longer. But the flesh wars against us and makes it such a challenge. Any transgression here then would include sins that have been realized as well as those that have not been realized. Anyone who's caught in any transgression. So, so in other words, we don't, we don't import into this additional words and say, anyone who's caught in any transgression, transgression and then asks for help. Because as a believer, you might know what this looks like when a brother or sister comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with X. Please help me with this. My goodness. Any, please pray for me in this. Help me deal with this issue. I'm trying to battle through this. It's wonderful when somebody acknowledges and knows their own sin and can bring that before 
their Christian family. Praise God. But what about those things that are being experienced and yet haven't yet been acknowledged, realized? I think this passage includes those as well. It's if they are observed. If that person has been observed to have been caught, ensnared, trapped by these sins. I think of examples you might experience with Christian brothers or sisters. I think of maybe, imagine brothers being around another Christian. Yeah, he asks for prayer requests in certain categories, but you, you tend to notice in him week in and week out. He's just constantly uh, letting his anger get the best of him. And it's at the root of what's causing conflict with his marriage. And it's right there with the way he deals with his kids and even the way he talks about his boss and his fellow co-workers and the, the government and everything else. Just constant expression of anger that's it's overflowing in a way that's sinful. And he's asking for, for one thing, but you might be noticing, I, I, think, I, think, there's, I think anger. And you, you falling to that and acting sinfully in that anger is actually the, the problem here. He may not even realize that. Sisters, perhaps there's, there's somebody in your life and, and she, she's trying to kind of be relating to a whole bunch of different people, but whenever she meets with you, she tells you all the bad things these other people are doing. And persistently, over weeks or months, you go by and you go, you know, I know that you think this is just relational issues with you and others, but maybe you have a gossip problem. Maybe that's actually something going on here. You, you think poorly of others and you relay poor things about others and you let that invade your mind so much that every time we get together, you're telling me what everybody else does wrong. Sister, have you considered? If anyone is caught in any transgression, something that is continually, we watch and observe it, be something that is persistent. And what are we supposed to do about this? What is supposed to be done when that's observed? Help one another. Christian family is designed by Jesus to come along, to aid one another in these exact things. Look, it even calls out who? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What does that mean? This is those who are spiritually mature. There's a sense in which every believer is spiritual. But this kind of category is broken down many places in the New Testament. Not only does the Bible unapologetically state that at any given time certain believers will be stronger than others, but it is also the responsibility of stronger brothers and sisters to help weaker brothers and sisters. The Bible specifically calls out these kinds of things, to help those who are weak, help those who are timid, help those who are idle. And here we see that kind of instruction again. Look at Romans 15, 1 with me. This is the Apostle Paul again. He writes something very similar. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, now, in this particular case, it might mean help correct weaknesses or things you see in somebody else, or it might be just put up with them, just, just, just accommodate, understanding you're going to be surrounded by others. That might be the, the sense going on here in Romans 15. But what is very clear is he's saying there are those who are stronger in the faith at a particular moment and those who are weaker in the faith at a particular moment. And it helps no one to pretend like we're all at the same point in that journey. Nobody could provide me any more wisdom than anybody else. No, that's not true, and we all know this to be sure. All counsel is not equally profitable. Not all counselors are equally wise. We know this. This should be quite obvious to us. I'll never forget one time going to a sermon, uh, listening to a sermon by a young pastor. My wife and I were visiting some family out of state. And this particular pastor said during his sermon, he goes, I don't understand you people who teach your kids to memorize Bible verses. It should be about the heart, not about the Bible verses. So if you think that your kids should memorize Scripture, then I guess regarding parenting, you and I will fundamentally disagree. And I heard this coming from this guy, but the next line stuck out, and I'll never forget it. Then he said, and someday when I have kids... Oh, Really? You and I know not all counsel is equally beneficial, is equally wise. And any kind brother or sister sitting there listening to that just goes, brother, hopefully someday you'll grow up outside of some of that folly. Not all believers in your life are equally suited to provide wise counsel. 
especially regarding the sensitive matters of confronting sin. This requires that we get out of our peer-level echo chambers, doesn't it? I remember when my wife and I were, were newly uh, parents and learning how to parent our, our, little, our little daughter, our first, and our small group was full of people that were all newly parents and some that hadn't yet had kids, and we were trying to figure out how to parent well, and it was the blind leading the blind, and we all loved the Lord and loved the Word, and we could find principles that were helpful, but it was, it was incredible to me to think that all of our focus so often at a small group, was dealing with how to parent our kids well, even from the youngest ages. And it was all these young couples at a small group that met on this night, on this street, three blocks over, all of the empty nesters met together to talk about how they had raised all their kids already up and out of the house. And I couldn't help but think, like, man, we, some cross-pollination could be helpful. Those multi-generational groups can be great. Now listen, I am not at all disparaging peer-level gathering. It's wonderful when you get to have that. And it's easy to associate with those that you're kind of in the same life phase. That's great. But we need more than just that. If the wisest person in your group is the one who's just six months older than you, maybe you need to find some more believers who've had some more time and experience. And this is, of course, not just about time. It's not just about age. It's about maturity, but how wonderful it is when we have multiple groups in our lives, multiple families in our lives that we can go to for counsel and who we can hope will be present and there to challenge us even when we don't notice the things that we're doing. How great is it when an older couple brings together a younger couple at a church and has dinner with them and during that, like, hey, I wanted to chat with you. I've noticed kind of squirrely kid during church. Can we help you with that? We, we battled through that for a while. We learned a lot of things that worked and didn't work. We could spare you some nosebleeds and gently help you. But somebody needs to tell you your kids are brats, <laughs> right? Someone, who, someone who's not afraid to do that and say, but listen, we had a couple of those too. And then somebody else taught us and helped us and trained us. This isn't, this isn't heavy judgment. This is let's help, let's help you avoid this stuff so that the next generation doesn't hit reset on all of its collective wisdom. If we don't pass this along to each other, literally that's what's happened. It's like throwing out all the books of wisdom and starting fresh, page one. No, draw upon that great well of goodness that the Lord has provided through other people. In fact, the New Testament gives us specific instructions on this. We we see it all over, but I think of places like uh, the letter written to the young pastor Titus. Paul says there that older men are to teach and train younger men. And older women are to teach and train younger women. Why? Because the expectation is as they're sanctified, as as they're growing in Christ's likeness, they have more wisdom and experience to offer. What a wonderful gift it is when we have multiple generations in a church that interact with each other regularly. You need to have relationships, deep relationships with those outside of your little peer-level group. So sin is observed, should be confronted by wiser brothers and sisters, and what should be the objective of that confrontation? Look at verse 1 again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Go ahead ahead and put up the next verse and we'll see. We're looking at that same verse again, right? We're still going on it. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore. That's the word for mending or repairing something that's broken. This should be the goal of any Christian confrontation of sin. In other words, if this is to be done, and I should say, since it is to be done, it must be done in a right way, in a right thinking. And this shouldn't just be the point at which the older brother or sister, the more mature brother or sister, just finally can't put up with that annoying sin in that person anymore, and so to go to confront. No, it's for their benefit even more than yours. It's because this is what they need more than just what I need. In other words, if it was to be that older couple who sits behind the younger couple with a squirrely kid that might need a little bit of help, we kind of dial in on some of that. Rather than, ugh, how, what do I have to do in order to be able to focus in church? Well, okay, I'll help them so that I can enjoy. Listen, yes, you'll benefit. But the goal is to help restoration, to mend or repair something that's broken. Not just to make you feel better. It's not just to get something off your chest. It's not simply just try to stop behavior you don't prefer. It's for the benefit of your brother or sister to bring him or her back into a right relationship with God or with others. 
Look at this in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Look at this verse with me. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for what? Restoration. Aim for that. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's the aim. When you're the one in sin, this is what you need. You need someone to help step in. You need your Christian family to help you. Hey, something's broken. Something needs to be fixed here. It's probably thinking. You might be thinking wrongly or assuming. Some, let's figure out what it is and try to, try to help you along in this. Your family has been provided in order to help these exact things. And how? How should we do this? Well, look back again to Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit that preceded this passage. Just a paragraph ahead of this one. We're told that that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. As the Spirit works in us, we grow in our gentleness. You and I know that challenging sin in another person can be done in wrong ways. It's not even a question. We all know this. You've probably been the recipient of the wrong challenge, of being challenged on genuine sin in a wrong way. Anyone married? Then you know what I'm talking about. Because inevitably, there has been a point in your life where your spouse has approached you about something that was wrong in you. But the way they did it might not have matched this spirit of gentleness, might not have had that level of care. This is how we're to do it. We're to restore in a spirit of gentleness. But as a result of the fact that it's often abused, so often done wrong, or even neglected, some just throw this idea out altogether, right? This is the classic throw the baby out with the bathwater. Listen, I have seen confrontation of sin be so bad, the best way to deal with that is just not confront sin. It's terrible. It's an awful idea. That's kind of similar to the people that I've talked with before when I've counseled, you need to spank your kids. You have to spank your kids. The Bible demands physical discipline of your children. Well, I know people who beat their kids. Yes, it's awful. They shouldn't. But the correction for the error on this ditch is not to dive into this one. It's to follow what the Word says. The correction to over-heavy-handed discipline is right, gentle, loving, careful physical discipline. That's how that works, not the abdication of it in entirety. You and I are to operate the same way regarding church discipline, the confrontation of sin. And I know this is a sensitive issue for some because you may have come out of a church background where they did it really wrongly. You come out of the LDS church, you've probably seen confrontation of sin done really wrongly because it's done under human preferences. It's done in a heavy-handed way. There's not a lot of grace because it's very gone from the gospel of Mormonism. And so sometimes people come out of those backgrounds and they're like, uh, any confrontation of sin is wrong. No. Ungentle confrontation of sin might be wrong. But you do need that confrontation. You need to offer it and receive it. And to do so in a spirit of gentleness. That's how we're to approach each other. You know, when I was in the Marines, one of the most hated jobs was after we set up a a field um, base was to drag out the concertina wire. It's that razor wire and the big bales and usually you have to stack it in a pyramid kind of structure. And that st- it's like razors every half inch the whole way along. It's really gnarly stuff. Lots of little points on it. There's no way. You couldn't like run through it real fast. I mean, it would rip you to ribbons. It's awful. And even though they make special gloves for it, those gloves are ridiculous. They're terrible. And so putting that stuff out really stinks. And eventually, when they send 10 privates out there to go ahead and drag the stuff around the perimeter, the new perimeter that they're creating, somebody's going to get all caught into it, literally, where they can't get out. Hey, I need help. And they, they're going to have to call for help for somebody else. This is inevitable. Now, what do you think? If their if they're pants or their, their, their long sleeve kind of shirt, some of their gear, or even, which was very typical, their skin neck and anything exposed got caught by that what do you think would happen if you just grabbed that person and yanked them out of the concertina wire lots of blood that's what happens and so how do you deal with that you get involved gently you got you got everybody pause just stop let's work on this leg first and we slowly get the little points of razor out of there and okay move that leg okay now stay you stay there and then you do the rest you help it get, get it out of their skin where it's touching it takes great care it takes great gentleness, because otherwise you're going to cause more pain. I always think of that when I think of helping a person with their sin, approaching it gently, because if you don't approach it gently, you can cause a lot of pain. 
But we aren't to just go forget that guy caught in the concertina wire, leave him to himself because I don't want to be the one causing pain. No, we go. And we intentionally put ourselves in a place where we might get cut, where we might get hurt in order to serve, and we have to do it patiently and gently. It's so important for us to do. And that's why what it says next is such a helpful caution. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's one of the reasons I like that concertina wire thing. Because while you're helping somebody else, all you do is your leg goes in the wrong spot, and then you're caught. Now you're on it. Now you're caught in it too. And now someone else is helping two guys out of the situation, right? If you've ever been in confrontation to sin, you may know exactly what this looks like. When those moments take place, sin can get crazy, out of, out of control, and there can be pride, and there can be immaturity and lack of self-control taking place there that can really turn into something ugly. Sometimes, when one person confronts another person's sinful behavior, they do it in a sinful way. I think that's why it's placed right here. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. To be sure, that could just mean don't fall into sin like they fell into sin. So when you see that, be reminded by how awful sin is and don't let that happen to you in your own life. But it's probably put here in order to help a person be especially mindful as they confront sin. In other words, if you were to confront somebody else's anger and they were to respond wrongly and then you get all angry, do you see how that, how that goes down, how that goes south poorly? It's kind of like when a mom or dad goes, stop yelling at your brother. You're, well, did, you, did you catch it, right? Like, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And this demands humility. It demands prayer and intention because you have to look at the person and go, that person's not like beneath me. I could never fall to the sin that I'm confronting in them. No. Either I have in the past or I am susceptible. I could fall to that. Lord, protect me from that. Keep me from that. Don't let me fall to temptation from that account. Even if that person does not receive you warmly, don't sin in return. You know, since the invention of the sniper rifle, it's been a common tactic in warfare for a sniper to wound one soldier. Because why? why? Why wound one in an open field? Because the others will get up and go to help, and then you've got easy targets. A sniper, one sniper then can take out multiple others, multiple other targets. Wound one, then you can get the rest. You're setting an ambush. I honestly think, and I've experienced this before, I think this is the best way to explain it, that when a person has been confronted in sin, I've personally observed, I think the enemy pounces and tries to find ways to drag others down into that sin or another one like it. Another error in those moments sets an ambush for us, a spiritual ambush to attack us with whatever's attacking our brother. Or if you're the brother being confronted, Maybe your response to that might prompt sin in the heart of that other. How careful we must be when we're doing these kind of things. Now, I've seen this kind of play out in a little larger scale before. I, I have brothers in Christ that I uh, confess sins with and hold, account, hold each other accountable to things and try to get to the heart issues of our problems and stuff. And uh, I, I've learned to preempt prayers regarding my marriage whenever I'm getting ready to preach on marriage. Because history, for me, has proven that if I'm preaching on marriage on a Sunday, Saturday, something weird is going down. And I, literally, it's, it's, it's been not uncommon at all. It's Saturday night when I'm finally pounding through the last notes going, oh my goodness, how can I preach this? How can I preach that, man, you should serve your wife, you should lead her well, you should wash her with the water of the word, don't let, you, don't let the sun go down in your anger. She's, she's in bed right now, angry, I'm down here, right? Why do you think that happens? Because the enemy is working hard to tempt us to not do what's right, proclaim truth unapologetically, even imperfectly. Those categories may be true for you as well. You're trying to help somebody else with their marriage situation. You may find yourself struggling in a similar way. We are to watch ourselves carefully as we engage in the confrontation of sin. Look at the next verse. This is a bit of a summary of what was just said right there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A couple things here. 
First, bear one another's burdens, I think is kind of a bit of a summary. It just basically states what was already being said there. Sin is a burden. And we're not supposed to carry sin alone. And we oftentimes need others to come along and help. And you, you, need, you, you probably need the stronger ones among you to come along and help the most. God designed it to work this way. We're to help each other. We're not supposed to watch as one languishes under the burden of sin and walk by, oh, they're pro- they probably got this. And what do we do with those burdens? We help our brother or sister pick them up, carry them to the foot of the cross, and lay them down at Jesus' feet. That's what we do. You offer the grace that you've been given. You offer the mercy that you've been granted. You offer the love and the compassion and the, I know what this feels like. This stinks. This is an enemy of your life. This is not good. And I want to help you with this. This is going to hurt if you don't get this figured out. It's a great care for another person. It's not letting them languish under that burden alone. Bear one another's burdens. Do it with them. We're not to be alone in this whole endeavor of building the kingdom. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, there's this kind of modern fascination and uh, infatuation with separating love from law. Like, well, you, you, can't, you can't be obligated to something and still, still feel a love for it. What? We're commanded to love. It's a, it's a law for us to love God. We are obligated by God to love him deeply and to love our brother or sister deeply. And here we are commanded, we are, we are obliged to fulfill the law of Christ. We are obliged to bear one another's burdens. In other words, this can't be one of those things that we can either do it or not, take it or leave it. Maybe it's an option. Hey, hey, if you're so inclined and you want to help people with their sins, feel free. No. You are breaking the law of Christ if you are not bearing one another's burdens. And this is why it is so important for us to be in relationships with one another. Do you not see and smell this, how all of this is predicated upon relationships with others? You can't do this if you don't have that. I want to wrap up our time here this morning with just four observations, four kind of summary points on what we just saw here. Because this verse doesn't actually tell us the exact steps we're to take. We do get that in other verses. That actually doesn't say this. This doesn't tell us precisely how, what steps should be taken in confronting sin. It just explains that we should. We can find find the steps in other places. This is what it does say for us. Number one, look at this. We are responsible for confronting sin in one another. That's that's self-evident in these verses. These aren't suggestions. They're imperatives. That's ought statements, should statements, law of Christ. You want to break the law of Christ? Don't do this stuff. You want to follow the law, fulfill the law of Christ? You've got to do this. You're responsible for confronting sin in one another. And again, that means you must form friendships in which this is expected. And if you have those friendships already built into your lives, you have those Christian brothers and sisters around you, but you've not yet crossed that line where you do that with each other, you need to do that. You need to You need to like take that step. You need to have the DTR, the defining the relationship conversation with those brothers and sisters and explain, listen, it's been wonderful spending time with you guys and I want to keep doing that, but can we take this another step deeper because I got a lot of junk to work on and I need your help. And some of you have junk to work on and I would love to be a help. This probably will require that you find others outside of your current circle as well. That's wonderful. Spread that out. Find more brothers and sisters of different levels of skill and, and experience and wisdom and age and all kinds of categories that you can learn from and be discipled by through these kinds of things. This is critical. And it may be unnerving the first time it happens. And so this is why I would recommend to you, I'm just going to recommend a practical thing. If, if as a younger brother or sister in Christ or a less mature brother or sister in Christ, somebody else that you look up to, admire in the faith, if you had that relationship and you haven't really crossed that line where you're talking about each other's sins like that, I would highly suggest to you that you offer that up to your other brothers and sisters. You, you, you take that first step. Listen, if you observe anything in me, 
I, I want you to watch my marriage, how I work, how I play, how I spend money, how I parent my kids, how I spend time with my other brothers and sisters at church. I want you just to observe all of it, okay? And when the occasion arises that you notice something that you think doesn't conform to Christ and the kind of thing that you've seen a couple of times, you have my full permission to tell me, alert me to it. That'd be a great way to start conversations like this with somebody offering that to you. We, my wife and I were so blessed. Uh, uh, it was shortly after starting to have kids, we went to an older couple that we trusted. And we got together with them for dinner and after we kind of did the pleasantries of the first course, I said, listen, we love and trust you. We admire the way that you've raised your kids. We want for you to observe our marriage and our life and tell us if we're doing anything wrong. Go. They were like, oh, uh, what? I was like, yeah, right now, right now. First thing that comes to your mind. What, what areas? They look at each other. Uh, you know they're thinking of something. I know you've seen something. What is it? Well, now that you asked. <laughs> and what a wonderful gift that is. And it, and it, and it, go, it, went, it went to show the, uh, the maturity of that older brother and sister because they weren't like, oh, good, here's the list. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> but at the same time, they were willing. Okay, okay, we care about you. Here, how about, how about this? And they laid out some things that might be helpful to think about in our marriage and our family. It is such a blessing to have people like that in your life. Pursue that and seek to be that. Number two, expect to receive correction. See, this has been addressing primarily those who are going to do this, right? So this is brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, he's saying that too, you who are spiritual. So that was the, the essence, kind of the, 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 the main sentiment we, we drew out of this. But this means that there's going to be two in any one of these interactions, at least, right? There's going to be those who are giving the instruction and those who are receiving it. Those who are offering the rebuke and those who need to hear it. So brothers and sisters, expect to receive correction. If you don't, if you don't expect to receive correction, the first time you get it, it's going to be like a slap in the face and it's going to feel hard. And it's very likely that the enemy will prompt in you a bit of a pride and like, I don't want to hang around that person anymore. Ah, you know, I'm kind of busy for small group for the next six years. Thank you very much now. Not able to come. Expect it. Expect to receive it. Prepare your heart for this. Be humble in this. Okay, I, I need correction. I need my brothers and sisters to help me with faithfulness here. Prepare your heart for this. Remind others, please help me with this. It's a great way to get yourself ready for it. And it's easy to say this, it's a lot harder to do it. Because you might be thinking, oh, I thought you were going to say this thing about, you know, this little easy issue. Oh, that? I don't want to work on that. <laughs> get ready, get ready. This is how we grow. You know, Jesus was a teacher, far more than that. But all of his teaching in the New Testament is correction on our sin. That's why it's there. It's there. Jesus isn't the guy walking around uh, in, in, uh, in Israel in the first century and just saying, hey, you guys are doing awesome. Great over there. Hey, way to go back there. All right, you guys, you got this. Jesus isn't some crazy motivational speaker. Every time he's opening his mouth, he's correcting sinful thinking and behavior. Every single time. Right? And so we expect as we open the Bible to receive correction from our Lord and Savior Jesus, and he provides that that specific instruction that we need through our brothers and sisters. Get ready for it. Get ready for this. And get ready to be told stuff that you weren't prepared to have to work on yet. And watch the Lord do great things in your heart and in your life through this. Number three, as you mature in Christ, you should expect to do more of this, not less. Confront sin more, not less. And here's why I bring this up. First off, because the text clearly said those who are spiritual among you should be the ones doing this, right? So it should be expected that those who are probably older in age, but at least those who are spiritually more mature, are going to probably be doing this more than those who are brand new to the faith or brand new to life and all the other categories. It's probably going to be the case. But I think that there's been an expectation in our current cultural churches that uh, just a little bit more grace, a little bit more mercy, kind of less judgment on those uh, as you kind of grow. It's wonderful to grow in grace, grow in mercy in that. But we must have believers who are willing to and eager to engage and help serve their younger brothers and sisters in Christ in these things. So if you're an older brother or sister in Christ, and it's been a year and you haven't confronted anybody on something, it may be because you're not in relationships with those who very evidently need some, some help in some caught-in-sin kind of categories. Or maybe you already have those there, but for whatever reason haven't quite developed the relationship with somebody to be able to do that. Please, we need it. 
We desperately need our older brothers and sisters in Christ to help us with these kind of things. We know that not all confrontations of sin are going to look the same. They'll certainly not all necessarily be public, but if you are older and brother or sister, you got to do this. You don't need to go trying to hunt down and squirrel out the sin. That's not what I'm saying. Trust me, it'll find you. If you're in relationships with others, don't let them languish. And lastly, right confrontation of sin is critical for kingdom building. I'm bringing this full circle back to where we started with. We talked about full institutions, giant denominations of thousands of churches, individual local bodies that started strong. You're like, man, that's a faithful church. Pastor and elders, they love the truth, and the people love that too, and they're all together there. How does it go away? How does that start to change? Because somewhere along the line, people stopped confronting sinful thinking and sinful behavior. That's what happens. You water that down, it's inevitable that this stuff will happen. It is a critical ingredient of a trustworthy church. This is about preservation of faithfulness for the next generations. That they practice church discipline. That's what this is. This is the first step of church discipline. The individual people that comprise a Christian church, caring about each other enough, caring about the word enough, trusting what it says. This is what's best for your brothers and sisters. This is what's best for you and your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Do this. We must get on board with doing this. And there is this idea today that it is an acceptable practice for us to observe a person caught in sin, languishing under the burden of it, and just leave them there. Because it might offend somebody. They might not want to hear the correction. This is not the kind of love that we are commanded to display towards others. And so I'd appeal to you on this from Galatians 6, 1 and 2. This is an absolutely critical piece of a faithful church. And when that disappears, it is only a matter of time until that church will be absolutely corrupted by the sin that has not been confronted in it. Let's pray that the Lord does not let that happen to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you and are grateful for this word. Please defend us, protect us from our own sin. All of us are sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. All, anyone with a heartbeat living on this earth today is still a sinner, saved or not. And so, Lord, please help us as brothers and sisters in Christ to embrace this, to learn how to do it well, and, and that, Lord, as we grow, as we mature, we become so good at it, so gracious at it, so kind and gentle at it, just as your word is commanded here, that we become experts at lovingly, help, lovingly helping one another grow to become more like Christ. Lord, we want to honor you. We want this faithfulness to abound from generation to generation. Help us to trust your word enough that we overcome some of the icky feelings of some of it that we've observed and maybe experienced in the past. We honor what your Bible says to do here because, God, we desire for you to get glory and us obeying what you have commanded brings you glory. But, Father, we know also it is for our great joy. So we thank you for that gift. Help us to receive and utilize it regularly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.